Coach Bradley, what's going on, man? Thanks for coming on. Uh, not too much. Uh, always, always looking to talk baseball, so this should be fun. Finally, I thought you were ducking me for a while, Coach. Never, never, <laughs> never. But got a busy, got a busy schedule, traveling around a little bit. So just, just needed to make sure that I could give you my full attention. I appreciate that. Memorial Day right around the corner. You're a Jersey guy. Favorite Jersey Shore town? You know, my parents live in Bayhead. Okay. I, I grew up in Normandy Beach. And my brother Jeff lives in Manasquan, so we have three pretty good towns covered right there. Um, but a but a but a big fan of both Point Pleasant and Seaside Boardwalks, and um, try to spend as much time down there in the summer as possible. Where's your first baseball card displayed? You know what? There's just they're laying around. I hate to say it. Oh, you know you don't have like displayed up because you know what? It's funny. I just saw you on Twitter, and you mm-hmm. had a. Uh, you, you and Mark Gubazo, you guys are talking to each other. He comes on all the time, and he's a big memorabilia guy. And his is displayed prominently in his office. So I was curious if yours were anywhere like important. You know, I'd hate to, I'd hate to tell you, I have no idea where any, where any of it is. Uh, some of it is we've moved around a couple of times. Uh, I'd probably have to go into boxes uh, to dig and, and find things. So um, I, I can't say. Um, the only thing I know is that, uh, a great story. Cause I actually, I tweeted about George Brett today about how much I had, how much I admired him. And, mm-hmm. uh, back in the day, remember there was only, there was like the Monday night game of the week in baseball. Um, you know, it was, there, it wasn't with cable TV and the MLB package. So games were limited. So I had just gotten called up by the Yankees. I was always a big George Brett fan and I hit a triple off of Mark Gubazov. <laughs> So I had a triple off of Mark Gubazov. So I slide into third base and I'm sitting there and I think somebody had told, we had a mutual friend. Somebody had told George that I was a big fan of his. So I slide into third base and there I am standing side by side with George Brett. And he comes up to me and he kind of leans in. He goes, Hey, there's something waiting for you in your locker. So as soon as the game was over, I go in there and there's a signed George Brett, uh, baseball bat in my, wow. in my locker. Um, and I know that's right next to my bed. So, uh, that's the only piece of memorabilia. I know where, where it is. And that's actually, George Brett bat. that's pretty cool. I'm not going to lie. You know, what's funny. I don't collect memorabilia, but stuff like that is just so like uniquely special. It is. It is. And like I said, you know, you're involved in different things and, you know, um, you know, just with the coaching and everything else, you know what, to me, the memories are in my mind and I love talking about them and I love sharing them that way. But I really don't need that physical confirmation that, um, you know, that 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 it really happened or whatever. So uh, they're, they're in my mind and that's all that matters. I love draft stories. I have so many athletes on. I love hearing draft stories. And Scott, you were uh, your show off and you had to go get drafted two times, only two times more than everyone else. Uh, drafted by the Twins in 78 chose to be a Tar Heel. Why didn't you sign with Minnesota? You know, it was just a time. I grew up in a family that was very involved uh, and stressed the importance of, of education. And, um, you know, I, I just, there was never, it was back in the day where there wasn't this signability that everything now, you know, teams actually, you didn't even know you were drafted a lot of times till about a week later. Um, the draft lists weren't published so it was just a completely different time. So I was actually surprised when the Twins called up actually about a week after the draft and said that they had, uh, you know, that they had taken me and sat down. And at that point, I was so dead set on, on going to North Carolina. Um, it wasn't like they lost, uh, you know, compensation money or bonus money or anything like that. You know, like they do now. Everything now is they don't draft people unless they know that they're going to sign. 
you know, back in my time, it was a little bit different. So it, it was it was easy to say no. And looking back at it, I could never even imagine my life without my North Carolina experience. I I'm I'm a true blue diehard Tar Heel. That's for sure. Were you at Chapel Hill with uh, Sam Perkins and James Worthy? That's a time frame. Uh, and and this this guy came in named Michael Jordan who was pretty good as well. Oh, so you were there for Jordan too? Because you know I was trying to do the the math in my head. You were there for the Jordan year too, also. Jordan's my senior year, and I actually signed with the Yankees. But my senior year was Michael Jordan's freshman year. Oh my god! But I uh, I lived in Chapel Hill in the off season because I just loved. Uh, and and you know the the best part if you were a basketball fan like I was in the month of September. If you went up to Carmichael Auditorium where they used to play, it literally was an NBA All-Star game. And the NBA players would all come in and train before that they would go to their before they would go to, you know, their 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 training camps. And you could go up there and it was the current Tar Heels against all the NBA guys. And and you mentioned, I mean everybody talks about Michael Jordan, he was amazing, but I, I was a huge James Worthy fan. I, I thought James Worthy was just incredible. Is it weird, Coach, being like you are a great athlete, you're a professional baseball player, you're getting drafted by the Yankees. Is it weird always being second fiddle to the Tar Heel basketball team? Because I'm a big Kentucky basketball guy. So no matter who you go, if you play football down there or baseball, you're always like second level to the basketball team. Is it weird with that uh, in respect? Oh, no, not at all. I mean, we were so proud of the basketball team and what they did. And, you know, it's funny. I I developed a relationship with uh, Dean Smith that led to a relationship with Roy Williams. Wow. Um, You know, I I claimed Dean Smith as as a mentor. Uh, When I was in the minor leagues, when I could tell at the end of my career, I actually went back to the minor leagues and was like a player coach. And I knew I was going to get into coaching. So I had wrote Coach Smith a letter and asked him if I could come and watch practices. And getting into North Carolina basketball practices is more different, difficult than getting into North Carolina basketball games. <laughs> and he li- he literally gave me a pass and said, all I had to do was walk in the office, pick up the uh, the practice sheet for the day and had access. So I, I watched for, for, for a couple of months. I watched, you know, his team practice on a, on a, on a daily basis and watch the way that he interacted with his coaches. And, uh, it was just an amazing experience for me, especially for somebody that wanted to be a coach. I was actually going to ask you that next, forget about the interaction with the players. Cause you play in the leagues, you're a catcher, you're, you're there, you're in the, the epicenter of it all. Watching the interaction with coaching. Is that something you took up? Like you, we would never think of that, right? Well, I knew that I was going to be a baseball lifer. Um, I, I just grew up. My dad taught us how to appreciate the game, you know, from a talent level. Uh, I did everything possible just to stay in the big leagues. I wasn't one of these guys. I, you know, I think I maybe had two spring trainings where I felt comfortable that I was going to make the team every other year I was there. Wow. It was like, um, you know, and, and every day you felt like, you know, you knew you were expendable. You, somebody could walk in and tell you you were getting sent down or released or whatever. And all those things happened to me. Um, but the most important thing was that I knew the game I followed it and, you know, I tell people my, my lineage, the the people that I had an opportunity to learn from when I got into the Yankee organization, you know, I'm around Yogi Berra and Billy Martin, Jeff Torborg took me under, took me under his wing. Um, You know, the catfish hunter was in spring training. Players were, you know, Bobby Mercer and Lou Piniella and Reggie Jackson. These guys were players at the time. You know, and then I had a chance when when I went over to the White Sox to be around Tony La Russa and Dave Duncan, 
Um, you know, uh, Jerry Hairston Sr. took me under his wing and taught me how to play off the bench, you know, because he was so, so such a talented pinch hitter. I go to the Mariners. I'm playing for Dick Williams. So, you know, when you start thinking about the people and the, the time and then, you know, three of my former players are now major league general managers. So, you know, when you think about it, I go back to Yogi Berra all the way up to Mike Hazen, uh, Mike Chernoff and Chris Young, who are GMs in the big leagues right now. That's a pretty long time frame in the world of baseball. That's some coaching lineage and tree, isn't it? It really is. It really is. In 81, when the Yankees drafted you, now it's only three years after the Twins, was it still different? Like, where were you when the Yankees called you? They said you were going to be a New York Yankee. You know, it was interesting because I knew you sort of set your sights when you went to college that, okay, the the general path is to sign after your third year. You know, that's when you had a little bit of bargaining power and stuff. So I had told everybody, yes, you know, I'm ready to I'm ready to sign. But it was still it wasn't like it is now. There was no, uh, you know, the the media wasn't there was the Baseball America. They're not doing pre-draft issues. Yeah, there was no mock drafts, right? They're not listing listing mm-hmm. all the top prospects and all the rest of this stuff. So it was just a different time. So, you know, you try to figure out. I had a good year, so I, I felt like I was going to get drafted. And some teams came around and talked to you a little bit. But I had no idea who was going to draft. And so I was home, and the phone rings. And, you know, the gentleman says, hey, I'm, this is Jim Grusdis with the Yankees. And just wanted to let you know that we drafted you. And at that point, here I am. I'm sitting in New Jersey. I grew up a Yankee fan. My dad, we went to Yankee games all the time. And now I get the phone call that I've been drafted by the, uh, you know, by the New York Yankees. But you mentioned you want a story. Here's a, here's a great story. And this is a, a trivia question, too, that um, has, has, has won me a few beers here and now across the country is I was the Yankees second draft pick uh, in, in that year. Uh, and unless you've looked it up, the Yankees pick before me i did look it up and that's how i was going to end the show trivia question scott bradley who got drafted before you a, a famous quarterback i believe got drafted before you right and it's funny <laughs> i can't tell you how many times i've i've, I've thrown that out to people and it's interesting because i can lead them on i can say look he was a first ballot hall of famer uh, you know and and they just can't figure it out and finally i have to give them a hint that say hey don't think baseball this is a little bit of a trick here that is um, awesome yeah, John Elway was the uh, was the pick before me, um, and uh, you know he got most of the signing bonus. Needless to say, <laughs> growing up in New Jersey, so you're close by tri-state area kid. Where'd you live when you played for the Yankees? Because I'm assuming it wasn't shell shock. Like a Doug Flynn just came on, and he said when he got traded from the Reds, it was shell shock. Coming to Queens, he didn't know what he was doing. Obviously, you had an understanding of the tri-state area. Where'd you live when you played for the Bombers? <laughs> You really want to know? I do, I do. I lived in the same bedroom and slept in the same bed that I slept in my entire life. And you made the commute? I commuted. I lived half an hour outside of Yankee Stadium. You know, minimum salary at that point was minimum salary was forty thousand dollars. So you know, where are you gonna go? You're gonna go find a place to live in in, in Manhattan making forty thousand dollars a year and knowing that you can get sent down it at any point. So it was interesting when you'd go out and, you know, you'd go out and, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd meet a gal or something like that. And you'd say, well, I better check to see if my, here you are, you play for the, you play for the New York, you play for the New, she's all impressed because you play for the New York Yankees. And then I have to see if my parents are at home to see whether, uh, whether I can bring her back or not. That's the greatest thing ever. Um, 
three <laughs> three years after you get drafted, you get called to the show. You mentioned Yogi. You know, the team was decent back then. You walk into the locker room with Yogi, Donnie Baseball, uh, Dave Winfield, Pinella Gidry. How do you go around and introduce yourself? You're you, As a fan, I'm always curious about that. You know what? Well, I was really lucky in that because I was a catcher, um, every year that I was in the Yankee organization, I was invited to big league spring training camp. So they'd like to have an extra catchers around. So I was with those guys for three straight years in spring training before I got called up. So literally when, when I got called up and, and walked up into the locker room, you know, with all the names you mentioned, the one that you didn't mention, who was probably the biggest and most important leader on the team was Don Baylor. And when, when I got called up, the first thing Don Baylor like met me at the door and he fined me like $200, like instantly, because he ran the kangaroo court. And I said, what's that for? And he goes, for taking so long to get to the big leagues. Oh, that's great. That's a well, so a well spent knew, $200. I, I knew everybody. Yeah, and I, so I knew everybody. I, I was around everybody in spring training, you know, for six weeks every year. So it wasn't like, you know, you're just in awe. You, the, the idea of going to spring training and being around those players really helped uh, the comfort zone. I know you said uh, only two times spring trains you knew you were like, you know, you were confident. Did you have a time when you were like, okay, I belong, maybe a welcome to the big leagues moment? They're like, okay, I belong here. I belong with these guys. Uh, you know what? It's a great question. And I knew I belonged, but I knew that I was also, uh, I had limitations as a player. Um, so I knew that I had to do everything right to stay i had to do all the bit the, the little things you know i had to be ready to to pinch hit i had to make myself somebody who could sit for two or three days and and have a good at bat and those things are really difficult for a young player and um you know it, it was interesting to see what would have happened because i really felt like it was you know really getting myself settled in in the yankees i think they were going to use me in a, a really interesting role i think they were going to uh, used me in that utility role at a time because Yogi was really interested in doing this before anybody really thought that that was what you do with players. Back then, it was like you played one position and, and that was it. But um, because I could play multiple positions and also catch, it really gave me some some value to the team that if you want, you know, you could pinch run for your starting catcher knowing that you still had a couple of catchers around. I could give the third baseman a day off. I could go out and play right field. I could go play first base. So I think it was really good. And then, um, you know, I got called up at the end of one year and did a couple good things. And then, you know, the next year um, I made the team out of spring training. Uh, I felt really good at the start of the year. And my first start, uh, I was run over at home plate by Brooke Jacoby and I broke my hand. Oh. Uh, and my pinky and really did a good job on it. So I was out for about three months. Uh, Yogi was the manager at the time. By the time I came back, Billy was the manager. Um, you know, my right hand is what I broke. So it really made me top hand dominant as a hitter trying to get back. So I just didn't play very well and didn't get a whole lot of opportunities. And then I started that, you know, up and down sort of Yankee shuttle where every time you come up, you put pressure on yourself. Like I better get a hit today. Otherwise I'm going back down tomorrow. And um, the next offseason, a lot of changes were made. Butch Weiniger, I think, was a free agent, hadn't signed yet. Uh, so there were certain things. So I was actually in winter ball playing in uh, uh, in Arecibo in Puerto Rico, and Dave Duncan was my manager. And um, so he got to know me a little bit. And then uh, before spring training that next year, I was traded to uh, 
I was traded to the White Sox. I was actually going to ask you about your first two seasons with the Yankees, the stint with the White Sox, before you got to Seattle. Mentally, as a young player, how difficult is that? Like, okay, if I don't if I don't play well for 10 days, I'm going to be forgotten, sent down. How do you deal with that mentally? Because you, you can't you know, talk to other guys about it. So how does that work? No, you know, as a young player, you almost feel like you're bulletproof. It's just all about performance. And when I was with the White Sox, again, I kept getting caught in managerial changes. The reason I went to the White Sox is that Dave Duncan and Tony La Russa wanted me. And Tony La Russa is somebody who really had a reputation for uh, using players like me. You know, catch me a game, play me at first a game, run me around, do different things. And then uh, we, we were struggling, and then he got fired. And uh, Jim Fragosi came in, who had no idea who I was. So I literally was on the team probably for three weeks while Jim Fragosi was our manager. And he had no idea who I was. He'd never seen me play in spring training, whatever. And in th- three weeks when Jim Fragosi was there, I did not see the field. No, nothing. Oh. And then um, they traded. So at that point, I didn't know. I, I thought they were going to say, I didn't know what they'd do. I thought they might send. So when they called me into the office, I thought they were sending me down. And uh, at that point, I'm thinking, all right, I don't have anything else to prove in AAA, you know. And they didn't tell me that I was being sent down. They actually told me that I was being traded to Seattle. And I really felt like, okay, this is going to be at Seattle. Had a bunch of young players all my age really trying to make make a mark. Um, And when I got traded over to Seattle, it's where I finally was given a chance to establish myself. And I did get over that point where, all right, I'm, I'm here as long as I do what I'm supposed to. Um, you know, I, I have a job on this team at least at least for a little while. Yeah, you played over 100 games a season for like seven or eight years. Did you enjoy your time up there? I did. Seattle's a great place. And, you know, the, 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 the most amazing thing, um, you know, Seattle's an incredible community. Anybody that lives up this way, and I'm actually out in Seattle right now visiting some family, and um, it's just an amazing place. And we had when, you know, when you start thinking of the guys I played with from, you know, Harold Reynolds, and Mark Langston and Mike Moore, Scott Bankhead, Billy Swift, um, M- Mickey Brantley, uh, you know, Michael's dad, mm-hmm. Phil, Phil Bradley, Danny Tartable. I mean, we had some amazing talent. And, um, you know, then Randy Johnson ended up coming over in a trade with Mark Langston. So we had a bunch of guys that were all at the same stage in our career. We enjoyed being around each other in the offseason. We made Seattle home. Uh, we went to Sonic games at the time. You know, we go to the Seahawk games, went to Husky football games, and we really became part of this community. And um, I think that's the thing that I remember most about Seattle. Yes, I had a chance to play, got a chance to establish myself. But just being around these people and the friends that I made, even outside of baseball, you know, uh, it's great. My biggest thrill in baseball, though, of course, would be wearing the pinstripes and being part of the Yankee organization. Nothing nothing would ever top that for me, even if it was for a day. See, and you, it, it's like you see my one sheet. I was going to say your personal achievement that I know you for, that most people know for, is catching Randy Johnson's first no-hitter up there. And I said, that has to be tops on the list. But growing up a Yankee fan, throwing the pinstripes on, coming out there, that must be just wild, right? You can't even describe that. You know what? It's interesting because uh, when I got called up at the end of, of, of uh, the 84 season, you know, I kind of felt like it was a reward for having a really, really good triple A, you know, triple A season. And it was funny, though, because, you know, you'd sit I'd sit in the uh, in the dugout 
And I'd look in the upper deck and all my high school buddies were in the upper deck with a sign. They they had wherever they would go sit, they would bring a, a big banner and they called themselves Bradley's Brigade. And, you know, it would be like 30 of my 30 of my high school buddies. You know, they would come to games and they would always sit like in the left upper deck on the left on the third base side so they could look into the dugout to see what I was, you know, see what I was doing uh, because I wasn't playing a whole lot. So to, to be around and have my friends and family. And then the next year I made the team out of spring training and opening day in Yankee stadium, being introduced onto the line as a member of the Yankees to start a season, not as a reward at the end of the year, but to start a new season is without a doubt my sort of get chills moment in, in baseball was you know, being introduced and going out onto the line on opening day for the New York Yankees. That nothing, nothing will top that. And and then, coach, then you retire and you get more of an appreciation of everything. And then you go back for Yankees Old Timers Day. As a fan growing up, my dad took me every year. We'd go to it, and you'd see the players. And then now you, you know, now it's different. You get to Google them while you sit. No, who was this guy? Who was that? How was it going back to Old Timers Day, seeing these iconic, legendary figures of the game? Well, here's another good story for you. So I'm like you. I grew up a Yankee fan. Um, I know exactly what Old Timers Day was. You know, went to a couple of them, watched them all on TV. So uh, Debbie Timon and Greg King uh, kind of oversee the Yankee, the Old Timers Day. They're they're sort of they do all the uh, extra events and everything else. So Greg King calls me up and says, "Hey Scott, we want to invite you to old. We want to invite you to Old Timers Day." And I, I, I kind of paused for a second, and then I said, "Greg." And he goes, "Yes." I said, "Why?" <laughs> and and he, and he goes, and he I kind of took back. He said, "Well, well." I said, "Look, I played. I have I have less than a hundred at bats with the New York Yankees." I said, "I barely played. Ninety percent of my career was not with the Yankees. Why are you inviting me back to Old Timers Day? There has to be a reason." And, and he goes, "Well," he says. Well, you're local. And I said, yes, I'm local. He said, and also, he said, it's really important to us that we can still have a five-inning game. He said, and we have a hard time finding anybody that will put on catcher's <laughs> He said, we were thinking that since you're a college coach, that are you still able to catch? And I said, yes, Greg, I can still catch. My legs or knees are fine. I can still catch. I said, is there anything else you want to ask me? And he goes, uh, well, we allot an hour and 15 minutes for the old timers to take batting practice. And we figured that since you're a college coach, would you be able to th- would you be able to throw batting practice to the to the old timers? And I started dying laughing. I said, hey, look, my favorite thing to do is to throw batting practice. Yes. I said, do you need to be honest with me now? He said, what's that? I said, if I had said no to either one of those questions, would you have would you have invited me? And he, he goes, uh, I said, oh, I know the answer. So I go the first year and it's incredible. And my kids were older. I got married later. So they had never seen me in a uniform or, or, or anything like that. a Yankee uniform, anything, anything like that. So the first day we go, it was it was amazing. But yet I threw an hour and 15 minutes worth of batting practice and get this one. There were no other catchers, so I was the steady catcher. I didn't get to hit. Oh. I didn't get to do. I didn't get to do anything else but catch and throw batting practice. But then they had the introductions, and I was the first person that they introduced. And you go out. It's a part. It's a whole weekend of of events. It's unbelievable the way the Yankees treat us. 
you know, you walk in the locker room and they have a brand new uniform hanging up there for you. You know, here's hats. Take some hats for your kids. Shoes. Um, have a big dinner reception. You're around all these guys. So the whole weekend is, is, is incredible. So as long as I can throw batting practice and as long as I can still catch, I continue to get the, the invite. And the other thing that it led to, which has been incredible, is uh, because of the connections, I get to go and I, I, I get each of the last three or four years, I've been down to Yankee Fantasy Camp. And you talk about an unbelievable time, not only for the campers, but for the, the, the former Yankees that go down there and work and interact at this, these camps. They do um, one in November. They do another one in January. They have a father-son, mother-daughter camp. They have a women's camp. Um, it, it's incredible. Uh, I've met so many great Yankee fans, uh, been able to hang out, you know, and down there they bring in, I mean, uh, Charlie Hayes, Homer Bush, El Duque, Ronnie Bloomberg. There's sort of a core of us to go down and work those camps all the time. Um, and it's and it's a blast. Again, the Yankees treat me like gold, and I could never thank them enough for it. And you were, you were mic'd up two years ago. I remember you were on the field with Tino and stuff. You enjoyed being mic'd up on the field? Yeah, and that was interesting because that was done by the people at Princeton. So that was that old-timers day, and the people at Princeton was – uh, David Hale was pitching for the Yankees at the time, and he's one of my former players. He's with the Phillies now. And we actually just missed. Mike Ford had just gotten sent down. Uh, otherwise, we, I would have been mic'd up, and I would have – the 25-man roster of the Yankees, I would have had – two of the 25 would have been my Princeton players, which is pretty pretty cool. Let's talk about your coaching. You hang up the spikes. You retire from the big leagues. I know you had a little stint in Rutgers. And then how did you get the coaching gig at Princeton? It seems like everything works perfectly for you. Jersey guy, Yankees. Jersey guy, coaching at Princeton. How'd that happen? You know, it's pretty simple. My older brother, Bob, who a lot of people know is the uh, world-renowned soccer coach. His son, Michael, was captain of the U.S. national team and has played soccer around around the world. So that's that's my older brother. So my older brother, before he got into uh, into the professional international soccer coaching, he was the soccer coach at Princeton. He's a Princeton grad. So uh, my wife and I, when I was sort of getting out of baseball as a player, we decided we wanted to live in the Princeton area. So we were living up there, going to all my brother's soccer games and in the area and around campus and everything. And just one day I was at one of my brother's soccer games and the associate athletic director just kind of said, hey, our uh, Tom O'Connell, our head baseball coach, just announced that he's going to retire in uh, in two years. Is this something that you would be interested in? And I immediately said, you know, where, where do I sign up? So at that point, I said, what should I do? And they said, go get some college experience under your belt. And at that point, I went to go work for Fred Hill up at Rutgers for a couple of uh, couple of years. Uh, was able to get myself into the Princeton mix. And because my brother was so well thought of um and did so well and rate and and developed such an amazing soccer program it was really right spot at the right time and uh it's it's been an amazing 24 years now uh we've had eight guys get to the big leagues we have three major league gms right now uh we have doctors and lawyers and teachers and you know the the student athletes that come out of princeton are really amazing people and it's something i'm i'm extremely proud of and also proud of their coaching staff because you're there 24 years. Pete Carroll was there for over 30 years. What is it about the longevity of the Princeton coaches? Do they Are they just loyal people or you guys just love it that you don't want to move on? You know what? It's just the right mix. Uh, you can really enable the kids to have the true student-athlete experience. You know, if you go to Miami, even North Carolina, any of these others, right now, I mean, there's so much pressure on those coaches that they have to win. They have to go to regionals. 
you know, it's I, I didn't want that. I wanted to teach baseball the way I want to teach it. I didn't want the results to necessarily dictate whether I was going to get a contract again the next year. You know, the most important thing is that your your players stay engaged with their pro with the program after they leave. I wanted to help these young men develop in every aspect of their lives. For the ones that wanted to go into baseball, I wanted to help them, whether it was as a player or whether it was in front office. Um, for the guys that wanted to be, you know, doctors and lawyers, we tried to connect them with alums. Um, so I just really wanted to make an impact on some amazing, amazing young men at a really important stage of their lives and to try to help them get to where they want to go. And it's been it's, it's been extremely gratifying. The Ivy League shut down first last year and still hasn't fully come back. Uh, I know Ivy League is known for academics. That's what I'm mostly concerned with. But thinking as a fan, these kids came to Princeton to be student-athletes. How are you juggling that aspect of it? Well, you know what? Um, we basically this year, we, we knew we weren't going to play, you know, uh, before the season started. And we just decided. And the Ivy League is different. Um, not just from the academics, but the, the Ivy League presidents made decisions a year ago in terms of, you know, because most of the Ivy League schools don't have a lot of off-campus housing. And, and I mean, Columbia does, of course, in New York City. But, you know, it, a lot of these, the, the presidents made decisions that they weren't going to bring everybody back. So even before, you know, so a lot of athletes, you can't redshirt. So a lot of student athletes basically hit the pause button and took what they call a gap year. So probably 25% of the athletes across the Ivy League took this year off anyway. So, you know, you were looking at trying to play with compromised uh, rosters. Uh, Harvard only brought two classes back. So they were going to try to, they had like 12 players. They weren't going to be able to play. Yale, a lot of their kids took gap years. They were going to have a hard time playing. So our seasons were going to be compromised, you know, even beforehand. I know everybody looks at it from the outside. It would have been nice to try to play, but we had 14 players on campus this, this, this spring that were enrolled. So we basically made it fun for the guys. We went out every day. We practiced. We scrimmaged. We turned the music on. We tried to make it like a player development camp. So this pandemic has impacted so many people in so many different lives. Our kids do have extra years of eligibility. A lot of our players are going to go to grad school where they have two years of eligibility to play in grad school now. So a lot of them are going to get their grad school paid for with some scholarships. Um, so they will get some baseball experience. But that decision was made by people at a lot higher pay grade than mine. <laughs> and um, we just, once they made the decision, we just tried to give the kids the best experience they could. We tried to get together every day as a team, tried to have fun, tried to interact. And, and I think we did a good job of it. Take me on a recruiting trip. I love college basketball and football recruiting stories. Obviously, it's different again at Princeton. These guys have sometimes bigger aspirations than baseball. Uh, do you enjoy the process of recruiting? I do. And, and I'm really looking forward to now. The NCA has finally cleared us. So starting on June 1st, we can we can actually hit the road and, and get on, on. We've been doing a lot of recruiting on the Internet and everything. So, you know, for us in the baseball world, we have different areas where we've really developed some great relationships. And, you know, there are a lot of them are the hotbeds. You know, it's easy to, to, to be local and drive and go watch a game and stuff like that. But, you know, when I head out to California and Texas and place like that, we go to events, we go to showcases. Uh, you know, we tell the kids all the time that they need to market themselves to us first. So they need to do a good job and send us emails and get into our database. Let us know where they're going to be. Um, you know, it used to be when I first got to Princeton, people would actually send uh, video cassettes. That's how old I am. 
Then we gravitated from video cassettes to uh, discs, then to flash drives, and now we get links, uh, which makes it which makes it a lot easier. Um, but you know, you're going out. I mean, I, I probably get twelve hundred. There's probably twelve hundred players a year that reach out to us that tell us they're interested, and I can help six or seven, Oof. and only help. There's no guarantee. I can only recruit six or seven kids a year. How I want to know this. How'd you get Chris Young to come there? Dallas kid, basketball player, 6'10". How'd you get him to Princeton? You know what? Uh, great story. And you want to hear something? He was my first ever recruit. Oh, really? That's a hell of a first recruit. Yep. So I had just taken the job. And uh, this is a great story. So we had just taken a job. And I get a phone call in the summertime uh, from this young man named Ryan Cotton. And Ryan called up and he said, hey, coach, look, I was admitted to Princeton. I'm going to be a freshman in the fall. He goes, I can't hit, I can't throw, I can't catch. He goes, I'm not a very he goes, I'm not a very good athlete. He said, but I absolutely love baseball. And I have been involved, I've been involved with the Dallas Mustangs for years. And the Dallas Mustangs are one of the top youth baseball organizations in the uh, in the country. And I said, Well, look, we'll we'll definitely put you. So I knew the Sam Carpenter runs the Dallas Mustangs. He's a legendary sort of Dallas area, Dallas based you know, youth baseball, um, youth baseball guy. And um, I said, well, you got to have somebody that there's, there's got to be a team, a, a player on the Mustangs that we should be looking at. He says, well, you know, there's this six foot 10 inch kid named Chris Young. That's um, pretty good, pretty good player. Somebody you should take a look at. So I go uh, look up some, you know, go find out where he is. And I call up Chris and talk to him. And literally two minutes into the conversation, Chris and I became family. Uh, we just hit it off. We think the same, um, our personalities blended. We have just, and it's interesting, you know, as, as a, as an older adult to be talking to a 18 year old kid, usually there's awkward pauses and silences and pauses on the phone. And with Chris, there was nothing. It was just conversation. It was about baseball. It was about basketball. And a lot of our conversations, we talked about basketball and so I asked him who was looking at him basketball-wise, and he told me, you know, Big 12, um, Vanderbilt, a lot of really good schools. I said, really? I said, would you be interested in playing two sports? He goes, oh, I would love to be able to play, mm-hmm. you know, two sports. So I go up to the basketball office, which is just upstairs, and um, knock on the door, and John Thompson, JT3, was was there. He was an assistant at Princeton. Oh. And I said, what are, you, what, are you guys, what are you guys looking for? He goes, we're looking for size. So I, at that point, he said, is 6'10 big enough? He goes, he goes, what are you talking about? <laughs> I said, look, I'm talking to a kid from Dallas who is 6'10. He's a basketball player at Highland Park High School. He goes, and every time I said he's being recruited by Vanderbilt, I said, I looked at some video. He's pretty good. He says, you know what? Let me look through our files. We recruited another kid from Highland Park last year. He goes, let me go back and look at tape. So I go into, back to my office. Literally 15 minutes later, JT3 knocked the hinges off my door and said, we, we got to get this kid. I said, what do you mean? He said, he's, he's big and he can shoot. We're actually sending Joe Scott, who was the head assistant. We're sending Joe out to Dallas tomorrow to watch him. And Joe goes out and watches him and literally comes back and said, this kid will be the best player on our team next year. We have to get him. So between the two of us, we recruited him, and we told Chris that we'd be very flexible, that we would give him in. It was interesting. You know, when Chris came in, um, you know, he'd say, all right, practices, basketball practice is going to finish up around 7. I'll get something to eat. 
coach, can I have a bullpen at 8.30? And Chris and I would go back to the complex. We have a great indoor facility, and, you know, he would throw and, um, you know, catch him, and he and I got really got to know each other and stuff. So, uh, yes, we once once we got both of us on board, you know, Chris just knew that Princeton was going to be the spot for him. And like like I said, that was my very, very first recruit. You know who you should have recruited. Uh, his dad was a Yankee. He's a Jersey kid. That kid, Jack Light, is pretty decent. You should have recruited him. <laughs> well, you want to you want to hear a story? Is I know Jack well. Okay. And 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 um, Al, I've known forever. And you know, Del Barton. We've recruited all kinds of kids out of out of Del Barton. It's uh, it's just an amazing high school baseball mm-hmm. um, you know program. Um, started by Brian Fleury, who passed away. Uh, and then Bruce Chattel has, has come in and done an amazing job. So we know all their kids. So when Jack was a sophomore, Al kept saying, I want him to go to Princeton. I want him to go to Princeton. I want him to go to Princeton. And I said, look, we'll take him. I'll take him tomorrow. I've seen him pitch, and he's good. And at that point, he was you know, 86, 87 miles an hour. And then he kind of started blowing up a little bit and started getting some interest. And Al would still call me up saying, hey, Scott, I, w- I want him to come to Princeton. And wow. we had told him we'd support his application. And everything. I want him to come to Princeton. And then he really blew up and then he committed to Stanford and I'm, or not, he, I'm sorry about that. He, com- he committed to Vanderbilt. And so he committed to Vandy and Al, I run into Al and he goes, man, I'm not sure he's ever going to pitch at Vanderbilt. You know, they're so good. There's so, there's just such a program and they bring in so many players and then he blew up even more <laughs> and he's turned into, you know, the best, the best pitching prospect in the, uh, in, in the country. So Needless to say, Jack made a good decision, but had he wanted to go to Princeton, we would have taken him. Coach, I'm going to actually go back around 30-something years when he first started. What changed the most from coaching, you know, 20, 25 years to now, coaching-wise? Uh, you know, the kids are different. You know, uh, you got to sort of stay. Unfortunately, I had kids that are, you know, in the in their early 20s, so you sort of, you got you can't be afraid to jump into this. The new, the, the new stuff, the new technology, the new thoughts, the new way of teaching. You have to treat the kids a little different. You have to, you know, we deal with more depression and anxiety than we've ever dealt with before. Uh, we're early on. We had kids that if they got a C, they didn't really matter. You get some kids now that if they get a C, it's like the world's coming to an end. I think there's so much pressure on kids these days to be such high achievers that I, I really think that you, you balance and walk a, a tightrope, you know, it, it gets, it gets a little tough uh, and you got to really deal with them and you have to make sure that, uh, you know, you interact with them on a regular basis, just like in everything else, you know, um, most of these kids have come to us from high level baseball training facilities. They have private hitting coaches. They have private pitching coaches. You have to be able to work with those guys. You can't just dismiss them. Um, so it, it's just like everything else in, in the sports world, you know, more specialization. I still love to recruit two sport athletes after Chris Young. We brought in Will Venable, whose dad, Max, played in the major leagues for a long time. Um, you know, Will had about a 10 or 11 year major league career himself mm-hmm. uh, and is now the bench coach for the Red Sox. Um, so it's it's just like anything else that you see in any the athletic world is just like everything else. There's so much pressure on kids these days. They have access to so much information. You can't be afraid if a kid asks you why. You have to have reasoning and you have to be able to talk to them. You can't look at kids anymore and say, well, because I told you so. <laughs> that, doesn't, that, doesn't work any, that doesn't work anymore. Coach, ready to finish up with some quick hit questions? 
Sure, I can take whatever you throw at me. Who gets recognized more, you or your uh, iconic U.S. soccer nephew, Michael Bradley? Oh, it's not even close. Michael Bradley. <laughs> 9 p.m. in Seattle tonight. Who's appointment watching for you? If you're alone in your hotel room tonight, who's appointment watching baseball that you need to watch? Is there a player you just obsessed with watching? Well, if if Mike Ford's in the Yankee lineup tonight, it'll be it'll okay. be Mike Ford. Um, you know he's been struggling a little bit. We got to get him to to start hitting a few more balls to left field and 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 back off a little bit on his swing. But I, I follow my guys. I mean, there are certain guys. I mean, I'm a fan. I watched Mike Trout play when he was 13 years old. You know, with some of these different events, uh, it's you know you, you're going to get your money's worth every time every time you watch you watch Mike Trout play. Um, I usually, I'm somebody, I flip around, I, I, with the MLB package and stuff like that, I, I jump from game to game these days. One baseball event you wish you could have witnessed live? Jackie Robinson's first game. Oh, good answer. That, you know, that's a different one. I don't get that a lot. That's a really good answer. How about this? You and I are sitting in a bar in New York City. You want to impress everyone in there. Who's the coolest person in your phone that if you texted them, they would text you right back? Bruce Hornsby. Okay. I, I like that. That's a different answer. Bruce Hornsby uh, is one of the greatest guys that I've had a chance to meet. Amazing Grammy Award winning musician. Um, became very, very good friends with uh, Bruce. Try to go see him whenever I can. Um, so talented. So amazing. Uh, has twin boys. One is a uh, G League European basketball guy. Played at LSU. Uh, the other is a world renowned rock rock climber. You know, doing all the free free spirit type stuff. Um, but Bruce Hornsby is the one. Normally, if if people start talking and we start talking things outside of baseball, there's plenty of baseball people in there. Yes. Right. I mean, I won't even go. There's plenty of friends in the baseball world and agents and and people like that. But uh, Bruce Hornsby is one that usually gets a little bit of attention. That's different. I, I like that you thought out of the box for your two answers. And how about this? And I know this might not be you, but last time you asked someone for an autograph, whether it be for yourself, for your kid, for a friend, who was it? That's a that's a really good question. Uh, usually now people are contacting me and they want Michael, uh, my nephew Michael, to sign something. Of so course, of course. <laughs> nor- normally it's to get normally it's to get something for somebody else, and these days it seems to be Michael Bradley. Coach, thank you for this. This was a blast. I'm glad we did it. And when everything opens up, I'm going to be a guest of honor at the Princeton Tigers game. Sound good? Sounds good. We'll let you throw out the first pitch. (laughs) Coach, I'll talk to you soon, my friend. Thank you for doing this. All right. You take care. No problem. Bye-bye.